0: microphone on my right ear so this is extraordinarily odd but we're gonna go for it that's, I use it. that's probably why it's set up this way so, so Frank is extraordinarily odd is actually what we're saying <laughs> all right um, well before we pray I want to give you guys some lofty ambitions I have for tonight and tell you why Um let me ask this question first, how many of you guys, so this is the fourth night, so you can count tonight as one, how many of you guys have, including tonight, there's, there's four classes in this class, Graceful Citizenship, how many of you have been to two or more? So how many in here, uh, this is your first night? Okay, um, so here's the, the kind of what's happened in this, which is not surprising at all, um, is the nature of people's busy schedules and hectic lives and all that stuff people have kind of been in and out so I um I've kind of been adjusting as we go so maybe if some of you originally saw the layout for what these were going to look like and you know have been disappointed I apologize um but I um I'm somewhat trying to adjust for the fact that there's new crowds in at different times and so therefore I've done this in such a way that I feel like will hopefully be beneficial to everybody who's involved, but be able to accomplish what we were ultimately hoping to, uh, to accomplish through this. So that's a, the desire. Um, here's what I'm hoping to do tonight. Um, and these, this looks like a ton. And in reality, we said from the beginning, and I'm going to hit this again in the introduction, um, that our design for this class was to develop discernment more than mastery. That in a a class where you're <coughs> Can I ask a question really quickly to you guys in the back? These are all being recorded and put in a package and put online. Am I correct? Yeah, okay. Right yeah, that is great. But I was going to say if they weren't, I was not going to use a microphone. Because this is driving me nuts. Um, so, we talked about developing mass, uh, not mastery, but discernment, discernment over mastery, because I knew that in four weeks span of time, we're never going to develop mastery in this. So I'm hoping to give you guys structures, skeletons, tools to help you think through with a biblical worldview what it means to engage politically. So in the midst of that, there'll be some conversation, some discussion, but hopefully some ideas. So my desire in these bullet points for tonight to talk about signs of political idolatry. So we're on the back end of the election, and many people feel all types of different ways, and many people feel it very viscerally, really, really strong. Um, So I was driving behind a car today, and they had the Obama logo, right? It's the O with kind of the inside that looks like a flag you guys know the the logo and then it had a line through it and you've seen that before when it says no Obama like the end before Obama and the line is through it and then it says if you're not outraged you're not paying attention that's what it said so people feel very viscerally about the election and now post-election all that so I want to talk about From a Christian perspective, how do we think about that and how do we ensure that we aren't being idolatrous? So signs of political idolatry. And then I want to get into some structure of what is the basis for Christian civic engagement? We've talked a lot about that, but I just want to give a quick grid again to think about this. What is the basis for us making a statement that politics matter or that Christians should be engaging civically or publicly is a word you could use it. If there's a basis for it, then what's the method that we should use to engage our thinking? I'm gonna give you a couple things there. The structures of public life. This is something we haven't got into a lot, but is I would argue instrumental in thinking Christianly um, about political engagement is to understand there are God-given structures that are not the same thing as each other so the church is not the family the government is not the church that is essential in god's idea of how to think through public life Um, just government and liberty so this is a huge issue right now is how do we think through how much the government should um, impose themselves and how much freedom they should give to individuals so i want to think a little bit about that biblically This could be a very lofty goal to get through all of this, but we're going to try to do it in a couple points on each one in um, a little bit of conversation. Principles of Christian political engagement. I'm going to run through about five things that I think unquestionably Christians should care about when they're thinking about policy. So guiding principles to think about Christian political engagement or policy. And then at the end, uh, we're gonna have an interview with Frank Switzer um, as the pastor of Arcadia and talk a lot about what's next, what he's thought through going through this class, Hearts for Redemption Arcadia in particular. One last question before I pray. Um, Anybody in here that does not go to Redemption Arcadia? Right on, all right. I want to read a passage of scripture in Romans 13, pray, and we are going to try to get after it and go fairly quickly to get through this. So we worked our way through this passage before, but let me read it to you as a reminder um, and somewhat as a a way of worship of how brilliant God's design is in setting up societies. But very important, we understand this as Christians post-election. So let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, which is your good. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom... respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed so let's pray god i just uh, pray that we would be faithful christians and that we would be able to engage in political life in a way that is reflective and glorifying to you and the image you've created us in in jesus name we pray amen all right signs of political idolatry uh this quote I recently came across, it's a quote by Tim Keller who's a pastor in New York City, he's written a lot. Uh, We're big fans of his at Redemption. So I'm gonna read through this quote and then I'm gonna ask you guys to respond. So give me your thoughts after we read this quote. The signs of political idolatry. One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol. So an idol, really quickly, let me define this. An idol is something that you have made overly important. So almost always an idol is a good thing at its root that you have made into an all-important thing, something that's changing the way you feel. It's getting in the way of your worship. It's an over-desire. One of the words that's oftentimes used in the scriptures, a Greek word called epithumia, which literally means over-desire. You've made it too important. So one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God, that's a, that would be an idol, right? If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We do not say what a shame or how difficult, but rather this is the end. There's no hope. This may be a reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. Whether either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies, people are not in power, everything will fall apart. They refuse to admit how much agreement they actually have with the other party. Okay, stop and let me read that again. They refuse to admit how much actual agreement they have with the other party and instead focus on the points of disagreement. The points of contention overshadow everything else a poisonous in, in, and a poisonous environment is created. Another sign of idolatry in our politics is that opponents are not considered to be simply mistaken, but evil. After the last presidential election, my 84-year-old mother observed, this is the previous election, the one we just went to, 84-year-old mother observed, it used to be that whoever was elected as your president, even if he wasn't the one you voted for, he was still your president. That doesn't seem to be the case any longer. After each election, there is now a significant number of people who see the incoming president lacking moral legitimacy. The increasing political polarization and bitterness we see in the United States politics today is a sign that we have made political activism into a form of religion? How does idolatry produce fear and demonization? Dutch-Canadian philosopher Al Walters taught that in the biblical view of things, the main problem in life is sin, and the only solution is God and his grace. The alternative to this view is is to identify something besides sin as the main problem with the world and something besides God as the main remedy. That demonizes something that is not completely bad and makes an idol out of something that cannot be the ultimate good. In political idolatry, we make a God out of having power. Give me your thoughts. when he had written that quote. It would have been, I mean, about not quite a year ago. So it was after the last, prior to this election happening, the results. That's really good. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up in light of so a Romney supporter freaking out crying. And then other people like we've enthroned the king, like the savior has arrived and that we're now, you know, so like infinite amounts of joy and then extraordinary despair um, in the midst of it. So, but... Yeah. You know, what's really interesting about that? Did I cut you off, bud? You know, what's really interesting about that is, and this is really important when we get into some of our method of Christian engagement is sometimes this is really important. I think you guys know this, but there's a lot of Christians who are elated right now, like evangelical Bible-believing Christians that believe Obama is far better for our country and will represent a Christian nation, more than Romney would have. So that is an extraordinary reality as you get into this, is there are very respectable, the Christians do not fall on one side or the other. This is one of the things that absolutely made my skin crawl during the election, I'm going to be really candid, is when they started doing the exit polls and they'd go up and they'd go, women are responding to exit polls like this, men like this, Hispanics like this, and then a whole category was mind you not just evangelical but white evangelical I mean I literally was going okay that's really bad <laughs> like that is just one the fact that you're categorizing not just evangelical which alone feels a little odd but not not horrible I mean part of me goes I hope we're that engaged that people care and I'm going to share with you a number in a minute that is somewhat astounding if it's true um, we should engage but the fact that white was attributed to evangelical and then made me think but i know a lot of people and white evangelicals are not a category like they're not a monolithic category it's kind of like saying you know eugene and i have these conversations all the time when people are like, black people are like and if you talk to enough black people they're gonna go You can't say black people are like. Like that's way too big of a group of people to say they all are like this. And that's the same thing even with white evangelical, is there are gobs of people in the midst of this that share different persuasions. And I think that gets a little bit to the heart of this quote of even inside political parties, to understand when things don't go our way, when it's become an idol, we begin to only wanna focus on the disagreements rather than the fact that there is a lot of stuff we actually do agree upon um in the midst of this that are just good things to think through. Eugene, you were gonna say something?
1: That white evangelicals hate them, are mad at them, are angry at them, and just like their Tumblr pages, you've probably seen of pictures of. Uh, you
0: gotta Ron explain people. what a Tumblr page is.
1: <laughs> so, t- I, Tumblr, someone, I'm almost 32. One of the 20 year olds. <laughs> probably can
0: I just want, in case anybody got lost in, what's Tumblr? What's Tumblr? I, 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 did, I, did, I wanted to get you back on track quick. That's what it is.
1: evangelical image that one would see, um, period. And secondly to that, I want to respond to what you said, but re- when you were like, this isn't the first time this has happened, this, that's why for me personally, I'm so fascinated when people are like, this is the end of the world. Because I'm like, every four years, someone gets elected that someone hates. I mean, like hates. And it's like, if this person wins, the world's going to be over. and.
2: David.
0: Let me let me I, I I wanna just say something. So I got an article through today and, and the title of it says White House Secede Petitions reach six hundred and seventy now listen to this. Six hundred and seventy-five thousand okay, secede petitions of states going, We want to secede from the union, petitions that are going around. That li- guys, that's huge. So some the article is saying the Obama administration now can't just go, Oh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but they're going that many signatures makes them have to look at this and go oh my gosh so this is part of what we've talked about in this class and I want to be pastoral here at a moment to say the hostility that is created if Keller's mom's correct what she's stating there is not just people accepted the presidency but she's saying there is a division happening now inside this country that maybe never before has existed. So there have been previous elections where people were really discouraged, but something is happening right now where the polarization on, and this is true way beyond politics, on a host of issues, a lack of civility that's re- that's really out there is so strong. And here's all I want to say in this is, I, I don't want to get into a big philosophical conversation right now, but the church, the people of God have to exemplify characteristics of love, humility, and civility to say, this is what it looks like to live in a world, and we're gonna get at this, with people who you disagree with. What does it look like to love in the biblical arena? You are to love everybody from, obviously, your immediate family. You're supposed to care for them. You're supposed to love your church community. You're supposed to love your near community all the way into Romans 12, even if they're your enemies, love them. Right. So that's kind of the spectrum. Right. The ones I, that are easy to love and all the way over to those I would claim are my enemies. And then there are very clear definitions of love. So hear me on this. That could sound a little you may say that sounds a little pie in the sky and doesn't really deal with the disagreements. What I'm saying to you is contextually the environment we're in right now as the people of God, let alone the fact that it's the thing the Bible says over and over and over and over and over and over again has to become primary for us. We have to be ones that think sanely, rationally, so that we can exhibit love and have conversations that it might at the very least not be said of us what David Maddox just said, that when these issues come up, basically a mini war gets created at a coffee shop or over the telephone or in a family, but to say, no, I'm gonna be able to show honor to these people regardless of if I disagree with them. If, it, if that's all we got out of this class is a push towards civility, the witness of the church would at least go up a step. You know, the witness of the church would at least go up a step um, if we just said, hey, we're going to work. I'm not even saying we become civil. If we just said we're going to work at being more civil and showing honor to all people, it would go up even a step. So, yeah, Frank. all people yep Mm mm-hmm Don't exactly. and then yeah, don't. Yeah, don't. Yeah, don't run for a petition right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, well, I want to. I want to make a statement on that that's pretty interesting, one way or the other, for for real, significant amounts of good or significant amount of bad. So, statistically, now let me let me just preface this by saying I don't know what their definition of evangelical is or evangelical is. But based upon the statements, people have said for basically the last 12 years, evangelicals have become a big measuring stick in the United States when it comes to politics, along with all types of other things. More books have been written from outside the evangelical community about evangelicals. So 20-some years ago, yeah. <laughs> uh, <whew. laughs> I would love to know the answer to that. I mean, we I, have to stop, right? yeah, we have to say yeah, I would love and I, I mean, here's the interesting thing. Uh, <laughs> here's what makes evangelical hard. Let's start inside the church, let alone what the media would portray. Um, inside the church, here's the problem. The Catholics have a system where the Vatican say this is what it is to be a Catholic right and there's an authority from on high the word evangelical I can break down the meaning of the word and tell you a little historical development from inside the church but there is no organizing group that is the gatekeepers for evangelicalism okay so you know that so when you get into things even inside the church. This could take us on a, a huge rabbit trail. I've been having conversations on this a lot lately, but when you you establish evangelical um, inside, there's even a degree of nuance. Hear me on this of even how church people would define evangelical. But evangelical, I would argue, there's a, been a recent article written that I think I agree with the vast majority of it, where the guy says we need to broaden the term Christian and narrow the term evangelical because people have made them synonymous, um, and at times it gets really confusing. So there's somebody who blogs something that somebody else disagrees with, and they go, well, they're not even an evangelical. (laughs) By which you're going, well, if they mean an evangelical is an orthodox Christian, then fundamentally they're saying because they disagreed with a blog post, that person's going to hell. Like, that's really strong. Like, that's a really strong statement. So in the end, a lot of people will have different... Definitions. Here's what, David, why I'm saying this is. This is really important. Um, Evangelical, it it comes from the word evangel, which means gospel people. Typically, evangelicals, which I would would want this definition established, believe in the authority of scripture, believe in all the orthodox doctrines, so the virgin birth, the physical resurrection of Jesus, the authority of the scriptures, would believe a lot of times, I would argue, modern-day evangelicalism, in its purest form would believe in a conversion reality to the Christian experience, that there is a reality of needing to be converted. Um, So those kinds of ideas, authority of scripture would be a really big one in modern history of how that goes. Now, getting to the media, this is what gets really scary. I don't think, I think the media really equates the two and more often than not would equate evangelical Christians with the religious right, way more often than not in the media. Uh, Eugene works in the media, so maybe he can speak to what do you think people mean by evangelical in the media?
1: So I would have simplified, and obviously as we were talking about groups are diverse, the mainstream media is actually diverse, um, which may be surprising. I would think that from from what I do, evangelical means people who evangelize their Christian faith. So there's a huge group of Christians who are okay with people not...
0: So you can you can see all that said, working definition, evangelical Christians, let's just say would be they media would say Bible believing Christians. Let's just say that in simple form. The only reason I spent more time on that is that is a really important question, you know, to figure out. So evangelical Christians, let's just say Bible believing Christians, people would establish somewhat that they would make up in the United States people who would profess themselves to be evangelical. Now, hear this number Make up one quarter of the population, okay? So make up one quarter, I'm sorry, not the whole population, but of voters. So if you take a voting base, which um, of a voting base, one quarter of, now just hear this, this is all in profession, and I'm trying to make a point here, of basically unarguably the most powerful nation in the history of the world. So let me just make this statement. If that's even close to true, one quarter, so professing Bible-believing Christians, making up one quarter of the voting base in the most powerful nation that ever existed, and I just said this, to whom much is given, much is expected. Like alone, you begin to go, wow. I mean, that's, that's pretty profound. Now that's where these questions about the basis for Christian civic engagement, the method, how we actually do it, what it should look like, Necessitates this that we're thoughtful we started the whole class going we're trying to develop discernment and thoughtfulness with an acknowledgement of typically evangelicals one are not thought of as thoughtful. Honestly, if you're in the midst of it and you have conversations with people about a host of issues, but certainly about anything regarding engaging of any type of public life for certain civic and political public life, we are not nearly, nearly, nearly as thought through as for instance, the Catholics would be not even close. Their social teaching is so far superior to anything the evangelicals have ever established. And I think there are reasons for that, which tonight don't, we don't have time to do. All I'm trying to submit to you is the reality of, there's, if that's true, there's a huge opportunity that if we just started engaging ourselves, and this is what I meant before, on a civil, humble, and thoughtful way, uh, there's significant opportunities. Here's a couple other things um, in the midst of that. Because of that, the presence and role of religion and specifically evangelical christians in public life is attacked arguably more fiercely now or certainly at the level of as fiercely as it ever has been ever (laughs) people are scared of evangelical christians for right or for wrong that's just true if you read the media it's true and the religion the role of religion and the presence of it in public life is very much um, gone against or worked against, since the atrocities of September 11th, right? Fundamentalist religion is demonized, right? So people who are really taking their faith seriously going forward um, is demonized and therefore the spiritual and religious dimensions of the entire globe of what people believe globally radically affects everybody everywhere, um, including us. So the secular media, how they typically perceive evangelical christians right they're going to acknowledge us as involved in pro-life family issues um, but here's something that's i think is really really important to realize christians so it's acknowledged that evangelicals are involved in pro-life and family issues but not nearly as frequently as it talked about of christians global involvement and local involvement in things like disaster relief so Around the world, so if you get around the world and you look at disaster relief, whether it's tsunamis, earthquakes, Christians are extraordinarily present. So in New York City, if you guys listened to uh, after the whole um, storm that just happened, if you were reading very carefully, there were people that were not believers going, come what may, say what you will about Christians. They are absolutely leading the charge in the relief efforts, like churches were everywhere. I mean, I'm not that connected with New York, I'm somewhat connected, but I mean, there were messages over and over and over again of churches like ours actively engaged on the front lines. Here's what I want you to know though, though it's not taken notice of nearly as much. So things like that, disaster relief, refugee resettlement, fights against HIV and AIDS, human rights abuses, slavery, sex trafficking, even prison rape, huge numbers of Christians are involved in that. Um, it's not acknowledged as much. So that's just an, a, a thought. These are all somewhat parts of, um, I kind of went down, but things to think about. Um, so here's a statement. Evangelicals, we already said this, may not always agree about policy. We, we won't always agree about policy. We may not, um, but we realize that we have many callings and many commitments in common with other Christians. So we may say, if this represents this, that there are evangelical Christians who sit on different sides of the aisle. But as Christians, we know biblically we have a lot of commitments in common. Commitments for the protection and the well-being of families and children. Commitments to the poor. Commitments to the sick. Commitments to the disabled, the unborn, the persecuted, the oppressed and the rest of the entire created order. That is biblically a reality no matter where you sit. So I was sitting with a friend of mine from Canada uh, this past week, he's in town, and he said, it's astounding to me how polarizing politics are in the United States, but inside the church. He goes, I've never attended a church that's predominantly one party. Never, like he said, in my whole Christian existence, I've never done that. And he said, me personally in Canada, I voted across the political party spectrum my whole entire voting voting life. There's moments I've voted for the Green Party. There's moments I've voted for this. So people in the world, look Christians in the world, look at the reality here and are blown away. Like it does not calculate to them as making sense. And at some point, we it just may go, I'm not saying you shouldn't have convictions, you shouldn't have deep convictions, you have to come to conclusions, but recognize the reality is people sit on other sides, but we have commitments in common that we have to go after specifically. So despite our common commitments and this moment of opportunity, so we've talked about common commitments, a moment of opportunity, here's what's crazy. Many evangelicals, and it's a growing group of American evangelicals, continue to be ambivalent about civic engagement ambivalent and that number's growing of people who are just ambivalent who don't care who don't want to vote as much um, in the midst of this that isn't just so you know that isn't consistent historically with our tradition it isn't consistent you read historically of some of the biggest bulwarks of the faith so the wilber forces the booth brothers in england jonathan edwards Charles Finney, you can go on and on and on. And you read the sermons of these guys, they were actively calling their congregations to be engaged in civic life and to fulfill their roles as citizens. So here's the idea. Basis for Christian civic engagement, okay? Um, We talked about this before, so I'm gonna run through this hopefully fairly quickly. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. The very beginning. So what I'm going to try to establish here is it's a part of human life to fulfill the calling to have dominion. And in having dominion, we have dominion over many institutions. This gets into structures that God has established. So the institution of marriage, the institutions of family, the institutions that set up education on and on. Part of us having dominion is the creation of human institutions and the honoring of god-ordained institutions like the church the family marriage right so those are god-ordained institutions but in part of human beings carrying out their calling of genesis 1 to have different institutions humans develop these in obedience to the word of god now we have the bible beyond genesis 1 we get to a point where we have the bible and you see there are these institutes given by god government right, families, churches, we institute schools and businesses, you know, depending upon your persuasion of how you feel about this, humans do institute things like unions. Um, so, but here's what I want you to see about government, just mm-hmm. governance, and we went through this before, so if you ever have more of a question, I can point you to some reading, just governance, ruling, is a part of God's good creation. Government is given by God, so that's one idea, government's given by God, and we are called to have dominion. Next thing for the basis of civic engagement. We engage in public life because Jesus is the Lord of every area of life. I said this in the, the first week and maybe the second week is the idea that if you are a Christian and you don't care about the entirety of public life, okay, and you, and you believe God doesn't care about that, let's use civic life or political life for, for instance, then you have a very, Little Jesus who rules over a very little kingdom. But if Jesus is who Colossians 1 says he is, that he's the Lord over the entire cosmos and over the world as it exists today, he's Lord of it, then therefore he cares about all of it. The way the church will declare that Jesus is Lord over all of this is that we would live in such a way. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What does that mean for the people of God to be a holy nation? It means we live our lives in all of the public arena, everything, the arts, education, athletics, public governance, life as citizens, saying as Christians, we live it together in these common commitments, saying, hey world, this is what it looks like when Jesus is king. This is what it looks like to engage in discussion civilly and in humility This is what it looks like of how you deal with somebody when you disagree. This is what it looks like to participate as a citizen in your community that you exist around. So if Jesus is Lord of every area of life, then he cares about public life, civic engagement, right? So to restrict our political concerns to matters that touch only our private or our domestic spheres, only the things directly around us, is to deny the all-encompassing lordship of Jesus. Okay, so the basis, right? God's called us to have dominion. Jesus is Lord over all. The next thing is the Hebrews prophets all through, and then all throughout the New Testament, there's this idea of the coming and the entrance of God's kingdom. So Jesus enters into the world and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here, like at hand means Here's my hand. The kingdom of God is here because he's come in. So theologians have developed this reality of the ongoing kingdom. So let's think about the kingdom in regards to the end of Revelation. It's this place where there is what the Hebrew prophets would call shalom, which you would translate peace, which typically Americans or Westerners view that as like just inner peace. Peace means harmony, the way the world should be. And that's the vision that the Hebrew prophets are consistently calling the people of God to live unto that the New Testament authors pick up is that this is the way Christians live is in light of eternity or we live now kingdom lives and as a kingdom community. So we care now about justice, peace, forgiveness, restoration, and healing for all. So the role of the church in this world of sin, where we know the kingdom has entered in in Jesus, and we live in this time, that theologians would call the already and not yet. The kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here. Jesus has entered into history, but sin sin still exists. And until he returns again, it's not gonna be done away with, but he's put the church here to exemplify that, which means we speak prophetically. We speak truth, we speak prophetically to society, and work for the renewal, you know, to get this in line with the kingdom, believing and knowing Jesus is the only one who ushers in his kingdom, but we're meant to represent this, both speaking prophetically and practicing deeds of righteousness. And what that means, hear me in this, speaking prophetically and living in deeds of righteousness will guarantee you equal, and it means we have to be willing to follow Jesus' example of suffering, suffering following Jesus' example of living sacrificially, right? Living sacrificially and suffering for others. We're still in basis. As Christian citizens, we believe it's our calling now, if governance is given by God, it's our calling to help government live up to its divine mandate to render justice. So Romans 13 is very very clear first peter chapter two is very clear that government is given to establish public justice right now uh, let me understand let me just state to you i understand there's complexity in this but the role of the church is to help help government support government to fulfill its role of establishing public justice Here's the last one, which I really think um, Jesus is a genius when he does this, because if we really just, he simplifies everything and says, love your neighbors as yourselves. And if we literally just lived out of that logic of how we treat other people, whether it's in a discussion, whether it's in thinking about how should we deal with this big public policy issue, and we just went, our first gauge is not to think what this does to me in my company. But how do we love the other? Love our neighbors as ourselves. Just remember that. I mean, the baseline reality of a Christian is Jesus calling us to love our neighbors as ourselves. So our goal in civic engagement, political engagement, is to bless our neighbors by making good laws. Okay, I just, I, I I wanna say this, and I know we're kind of in a rapid um night tonight but jesus calls us to love our neighbors our act of civic engagement is to bless our neighbors by making good laws that means you have to be involved in the process to ensure maybe at times speaking prophetically and at other times engage on whatever level you can i'm not saying you have to be a politician but the beauty of living in a democracy is that we can speak into the reality of just Laws and just practice that those laws, if you've been engaged at all in public life, which all of you have, affect how people are loved, how people are cared for, what happens in the midst of this. Now, there's disagreement in how to carry that out, um, but we need to do that. When Christians do justice, this gets at what Eugene was saying. It speaks loudly about God. When they don't, it speaks loudly about God, <laughs> like it just does um, specifically. So. The Christian vision, our vision, the way we view this will contribute to the way we act and and the way we act will contribute to either the common good or the opposite, right? Or it could help alleviate the ills of society. So basis of Christian engagement. Method of engagement. Okay, here's what I want you to know. When you think about this method, there are two things you have to think about. Well, let's say three. So normative, which I'm going to make this statement fast, but hopefully you're hearing this all the time. The Bible proclaims itself as public truth, okay? The Bible does not communicate itself saying, this is truth for Christians. God's saying, this is the true story of the whole world, Right. And if you go against it over and over in the Proverbs, you go against the word of God, there will be consequences because God's the creator. He's ordered a society to function in a certain way. If you live contrary to that, mark my words, biblically speaking, you know, you will reap what you sow. Okay, so when the method of political engagement for Christians has to be guided by normative truth. Now, hear me on this. There are ways in which you can go to the Bible and pick out your favorite part to support your pet policy issue and it in turn not be normative truth. Okay, just picking a verse and going, look, here's the verse that says it right here. All I'd say is, well, what's the context of that verse? And what's the context of that book? And what's the overarching story telling us? So normative truth is that Christians are living out of a story that the Bible tells from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that God is declaring this is the true story of the world. Live in line with this, okay? So that's a method. Remember, I'm telling you discernment, a structure. So there's a normative reality. This is the norm. This is the truth. This is the public reality. Now, here's where this gets dicey is factual analysis, so we're working out of a worldview. This is where the all the controversy comes in, right? Different people interpret things differently. Therefore, there are different facts, which this is what's amazing to me about the Bible. The Bible presents a story, but it doesn't say, here's how you should deal with the immigration crisis in the United States in 21st century. <laughs> like, that'd be really easy, right? Like, I go right there, you know? It's right in Habakkuk chapter one, verse three, right? It tells me it doesn't. Now, what's astounding about that is that I'm convinced God has set this, this is how much God thinks of humanity, is that he gives you this grid of this word to shape a worldview so much and then says, listen, I've made you in my image, figure this stuff out. And then here's what's crazy is he didn't say, hey, you go in an island by yourself and figure this out. He says, figure it out in the context of a community, right? So one, Christians figure out how we should think about these things. And then what's crazy about that is he says, and then you have to live it out amongst a whole entire community with a bunch of people who don't believe like you do. That's crazy. I mean, I, I love this makes me more excited than anything because when you wanna know what it means, you gotta think and you gotta work. And undergirding your thinking and working has to reign, love your neighbor as yourself. That's now, now, what's crazy about that is the absolute opposite of the typical nature of our culture. Like, just tell me what to believe. Just tell me the easy thing. Let's find an easy, microwavable solution, right? There isn't an easy, microwavable solution, right? Get into the game, distribute these characteristics, these commitments, and think through, how do we figure out the facts of this situation? It means we got to get in to go, what really are the facts? What do people really believe? Listen to a lot of people, hear a lot of people. If you don't listen to people, let's for stay in the metaphor for a minute, on both sides of the aisle, I guarantee your facts are gonna represent the same facts of everybody on this side and be counter to those in this side. And Christians are saying, gosh, God's wisdom may be found in both sides, right? Like, so I'm not gonna listen to one pundit and not another pundit, right? Tim Keller um, gave this great statement to pastors. And he talks about when they're preparing their sermons, he said, if you listen to one person or read one person, you're a parrot. If you listen to two, you're confused. If you read many, listen or read, if you read many, you begin to find your voice. Which is is so interesting for us of going, you listen to one guy, like listen to Rush Limbaugh alone, I guarantee you're gonna parrot Rush Limbaugh. Listen to Sean Hannity alone, listen to Rachel Maddow alone, you're going to parrot them. But if you listen to other people and get into thoughtful engagement, you may begin to go, wow, one, this is more complex, which is going to breed a lot of humility. Two, you're going to become far wiser, and pretty soon you're going to start seeing things take shape that you actually have an informed, humble opinion on some policy issues. You know. Now, even better than that, you do it in the context of a community of people who are thinking with a biblical worldview in which you can begin to go, How should Redemption Arcadia think about the issue of immigration? So I posed this before along the way, like what would it look like for people from multiple domains in a church like this to get together and think about immigration together from a biblical framework, hoping to get the facts is that it's not just people who work at neighborhood ministries, which you want them in here, who deeply care about this issue, who are around undocumented people all the time, but also some people in law enforcement who may be border control agents. You bring them to it. Then you bring people in the hospitals who are having to deal with the reality of people, you know, coming in and having to care for them. You b- deal with people in education. Then you deal with businesses, guys who own businesses that employ these people and can't find workers anyway else. What if you got a table of those people together as Christians going, we have to work under this normative framework the factual analysis, I guarantee you, is gonna be way more heightened than just a group of people who are ministering to immigrants caring for them because you have all these different domains and they said, let's have this heightened with this as a reality. What would a solution really look like? Now, at the ver- you may go, well, that's never gonna solve the immigration crisis. <laughs> Maybe not, but just in the history of our country, so you know, it's been citizens, being citizens, informed citizens that have spoken to change policy, right? And making it just policy. So just as a raise your imagination, I understand a lot of you guys have a whole lot going on in your lives, but that's a really interesting thought, you know, of, of engaging on a political front with um, John Stott would always say that we should be people with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, right? That that's the engagement of how Christians should be engaging um, politically. So, We're seeking to submit every area to the authority of scripture. Um, Okay. We are never gonna get through all of this. But it was a worthy cause to try. Um, So method, here's the last thing I'd add in method is, um, and we've said this a lot, but I just wanna say it, humility and civility. And over all this, I'm going to put love, right? So a picture. Um, I just want to get to this one before I bring Frank up for an interview. Um, Just government and fundamental liberty. Okay, so this one. Just government and fundamental liberty. God is the source of all true law, normative law, right? He's the source of it. And he's the source of genuine freedom. I've come to give you life and give it to the full. When you know the truth, the truth will set you free, right? So he's the source of all truth and genuine liberty. He both legitimates and limits. Okay, I want you to hear this. He legitimates the state's authority and he limits the state's authority. He does both, right? So thus, You have a moment, Jesus, rend to Caesar what is Caesar's. You could not, at that time, I don't have the chance to go into all this, you could not make a stronger statement of Jesus legitimizing the state's authority than a statement like that, right? So while we owe Caesar his due, though, we regard only Jesus as Lord. So he says, rend to Caesar what is Caesar's, and then what does he say? And to God, what is God's, right? The image of God, we're God's, creation's God. So that is a huge statement of Jesus consistently going, listen, give to Caesar his due, legitimizing state authority, but the reality is Jesus is Lord. No country, this is idolatry, okay? No country is Lord, no policy is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So as the king of kings, Jesus' authority rules over every state, As followers of Jesus, we read this in Romans chapter 1, we obey governing authorities, right? We submit to them. So now here's, I just have to say this before we move on. We submit, we're called to submit and obey the governing authorities when they act in accord with God's justice and God's laws. Turn to Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Titus. Chapter three, verse one. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So there's this obedience calling them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to obedience, to be ready for every good work. So that means if we are called to do something in submitting to the governing authorities that is counteracting good work, good works in accordance, that doesn't fulfill God's justice and his laws, then things get interesting, right? So we also, therefore, must resist government when it exercises its power in an unjust manner. Acts chapter 5, right? What do you guys, anybody know what Acts chapter 5 is? Anybody know it? You can shout it out. It, it is not Ananias and Sapphira. The apostles are arrested, right? So the apostles are arrested, and then here's, so the captain of the officers in verse 26, um, then the captain with the officers, went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So they've arrested them, they bring them in, and when they were brought before them and set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But when Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him, right? And then you have the apostles have this moment of you determine if it's right to obey you or for us to obey God. But we're going to obey God. Right. Now what's astounding in that is everybody will always go, yeah, but they're preaching the gospel. But the greatest commandments to love your neighbor as yourself. So if at any point we're put in a place where we can't obey God because what the government's doing, or the government's not fulfilling that, we have a duty. So that's that's where we have a freedom now to speak up, and I think of even if we didn't, an opportunity to really go after it. So this is where things get really unique. Um, I'm going to run through principles of Christian political engagement in a minute, but let me use an example. If you guys have not read the recent biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and you're interested in this idea, read it. Okay, read it. Now, there's a lot of differing opinions on this. I mean, there are some strong Christian theologians that would say the United States should have never rebelled against the British, so therefore should have never established itself as a country. Really interesting conversations. The Bonhoeffer story, if you read a biography, puts a Christian in a real life moment of how should a Christian respond to a government like the Nazis, right? And there were tons of Christians silent going, submit to the government, submit to the government, while hundreds of thousands of people are gruesomely being put to death. Bonhoeffer, depending upon where you stand on history, arguably could have been or was, based upon the German's opinion, (laughs) Plotting an assassination of Hitler. He's killed for it, okay? What's astounding in the story is the wrestling match that a Christian has and Christians at the time have between what does it mean to submit to the governing authorities but to never do something that does not allow us to obey God. Very interesting conversations. Another one that I think the Bible upholds both of these realities. It gives credence to the state's authority and limits it and then tells Christians to live within that tension but doesn't give us what should we do in this time and place but goes figure it out together. That's, those are astounding and people are going to sit on different sides but that's a grid, right? A discernment um, path that we're giving you. Here are things I know that Christians should care about. Protecting religious freedom and the liberty of conscience. I know that. And not just the religious liberty of people who believe like you. Religious liberty. We should absolutely care about that. For Religious freedom and the liberty of conscience. Here's another one. We must work to nurture family life and protect children. One of the things I loved, and don't read in me political persuasions at all, but when President Bush, last President Bush, was getting elected, whenever he was asked questions about many issues, he would say, I believe we need to promote a culture of life not of death i loved that language because and especially people applied it across the board because he was saying culture you can create a culture whether you know it or not where it is leading to death rather than to life we need to create a culture of life and work to nurture the family and protect children it's very clear jesus loves children right like you if you've ever been in sunday school you know that that's true and he deeply cares about families We have to work to protect the sanctity of human life, safeguard its nature, I hit that. Um, We have to seek justice and compassion for the poor and vulnerable all over the Bible. So that's something that is a a guideline um, in the midst of this. We have to work to protect human rights. This is the idea of a culture of life at all levels, right? Human rights violations that are grossly disgusting promote a culture of death, not a culture of life. So we work to protect human rights We seek peace and work to restrain violence. That's something we are, now hear that. The active pursuit of peace in turn means the restraint of violence. That is Romans 13. The government's given as a huge mechanism to do that. Promote peace, restrain violence. We labor to protect God's creation. So those are just some some principles um, in the midst of it. I'm going to bring Frank up, um, and I want to just ask him, thoughts on the class thus far and the topic. So would you guys welcome your pastor? I didn't bring my seat, so um, yeah, you do. You do. You've been sitting the whole time, and I'm gonna let you sit more. Um, Frank, here's my first question I want to ask you. Um, what, for you, as the pastor of Redemption Arcadia, in regards to the class or different thoughts that you had from the class, what is let's start with one what do you feel like the most important thing that you if you're just sitting in the chair going if they could get this i hope they get this thing if they could get one thing i hope it's what
3: um well that's not the question we <laughs> that's
0: exactly right. we did no rehearsing so <laughs> um well
3: and gnashing of teeth and all of that weeping. And there was great celebration going on too. You were tweeting about the celebrations We i'm going to sit i'm going to sit down again because um and i start thinking about the structure of peter's letter especially uh, peter starts off his letter by saying um, praise be to the god and father of our, our, our lord jesus christ who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again into a living what hope Year 2021. But we're going <laughs> to go through and, and you know, it's kind of, when Paul writes, you know, it's like he, he gets through something and then he's kind of done with it. and He puts it to bed and he moves on. If you notice in First Peter, he continues to circle back to the themes. He just keeps circling back, circling back, circling back, circling back. <laughs> and there's four or five themes that he keeps circling back to. But what I've what I've discovered is that every time he every one of these themes that he circles back to is ensconced or uh, That we have a hope and an inheritance through the resurrected Christ. We have a living hope and an inheritance through the resurrected Christ. So, we're called to live holy. The reason we can live holy is because we have a hope and an inheritance in the resurrected Christ. We're called to conduct ourselves a certain way. Uh, We're called to conduct ourselves in a certain way within the church with affectionate and and uh, unconditional love. We're also